Welcome back to Lecture Me Not, the podcast that brings you a little bit closer to the professor. I'm your host, Ethan. So just a quick update. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and other podcast hosting apps. So psychology. As some of you may know, it's a really broad, fascinating subject with many branches going from behavioral to social psychology. Unfortunately, I'm not very well versed in the matter at hand, only gleaning a few tidbits from friends in the department or from my intro to psych course, Psych 100. Fortunately, today's guest, Dr. Wagner Denton, is a professor for Psych 100 and is much better versed in psychology than I will ever be. We'll be talking to her today about her roots, why she became interested in social psychology specifically, and why she wanted to become a professor, among other things. Alrighty, so um, today we have Dr. Regna Dentrum with us. She's a prof in the teaching stream for the Department of Psychology with a doctorate in social psychology. She's also an NS alum, which is always welcome. Yeah. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, happy to be here. Um, so speaking of introductions, you teach the introductory psych class, and um, you know I always wondered how professors prep for the lectures. So how how <laughs> how do you actually prep for those lectures? Oh my gosh! Um, so it's very different, uh, you know, going through a course for like the very first time that you're teaching it mm. versus like okay, you've done it before, you have uh, some materials prepared and some idea of what you want to do. So. Um, at this point, I've taught Psych 100 and courses like that enough where I kind of go through and I um, will just sort of edit things and add things and think about, okay, this is, this went well last time, so I really want to do this again um, versus, oh, I, you know, this particular lecture, this particular concept, I really um, feel like I can do a better job getting, you know, this point across that I'm trying to make. And so I'll focus on sort of particular things that I want to improve okay. upon. Okay. Because for me, there's, I just actually mentioned this, where um, <laughs> I can't um, imagine trying to prep for such a big lecture. Um, just to put into context, Psych 100 is taught in Con Hall or Convocation Hall, for those of you that might not know. And there's around 1,300 people-ish in that class. <laughs> um, that depends on how many people actually show up. But, you know, um, it's, it's a really large class, right? Yeah, no, right now I just looked at my class list and there was, um, so oddly enough, 1,499 students. No, so not oh, quite at cool. the full 1,500. I don't know what was that is about, because um, usually there's a wait list as well. But yeah, it usually starts out at the full 1,500. Um, and then by the end of the course, it's more closer to like 1,300. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> so how do you prepare for the syllabus? Because I know you have... I think you have an article or paper for regarding this, uh, regarding like the tone of the syllabus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, well, the syllabus itself always sort of takes me way longer to put together than uh, I think that it's going to, or than you sort of think that it should. But you, um, you know, it's a really important document, and uh, you know, especially for I think a course like Psych 100 where you have you know. 75% or more of the students being first-year students, especially in the fall semester, oh, where it's yeah. sort of your very first university course, and you really, um, you know, have students perhaps not knowing, you know, not really having any idea what to expect from uh, a university class. I want to make sure that I give a really 
detailed syllabus that is answering as many questions um, as I possibly can within that document um, so that students have that to, to refer to throughout the year um, and don't have to wonder about who do I email about this or what do I do if I you know wake up with the flu on the, the morning right. of my test or um, what is expected of me in terms of reading and how do I buy my materials and um, who do I go to see if I'm having you know this sort of problem or that sort of problem um, yeah so I, I spent a lot of time on the syllabus especially for psych 100 it's by far the longest syllabus of all my uh syllabi I think it's like I'm up to over like 20 pages um but I you know I want it to be an informative document I also um you know it's written in my voice I think for the most part like my you know my sort of personality and teaching style I think starts to come through right away with the syllabus which I think also um, helps students prepare for sort of what to expect in a course that they're taking with me in particular. Right. I think it's really interesting, actually, because I feel like for me personally, sometimes when I look at the syllabus, it's either like really long or not informative enough, or sometimes there's been ones that are very so bare bones to the point yeah. where it's like, oh, you had this as an instructor. These are their office hours. This yeah. is the content. They kind of finish with it. I guess it differs based on the year too, not year by year, but like by how far along you are in university, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel, you know, by, you know, my third year course, uh, well, actually, that one's a little different too because it's a lab course and a lot of the students, I feel like, don't really know what to expect oh. in like this tiny little lab course. They're used to taking, you know, these um, giant, you know, psych lecture courses. Um, so with that one, I try to be clear about sort of what the expectations are as well. Um, but yeah, but, you know, it, if I was prepping, you know, like a sort of a lecture type course for every years, um, at that point, you sort of know, the students know what to expect. In that case, most of the students have probably actually had me <laughs> teach them probably. one of their earlier um, courses because I teach so many of the sort of big, uh, you know, mandatory, you know, intro and stats courses that most students by third or fourth year have sort of um, know me by then. So I worry less about sort of making that, um, you know, super welcoming first impression because I right. feel like most of them have gotten that at some point already. Mm. And so how did you... Wow, this is awkwardish. So how did you <laughs> how did you come to find a passion for teaching? Oh, um, passion for teaching. So I was in in graduate school. So I, I got my PhD at Indiana University. Um, and as part of the requirements for my PhD program, you have to do uh, take a teaching course, and then um, they have their graduate program set up where all of the um, third year graduate students um, taught a small section, uh, laboratory section for an undergrad research methods class. Okay. And so that was like my first experience actually teaching. So I had two little lab sections. There were about 10 to 15, I think, students each. Um, and then I kind of realized through that experience that I, I was like, oh, I really, I really enjoy teaching. I really like this. And I in some sense, I you know, I always do that because growing up, I always, I wanted to be a teacher. My mom was a teacher. My sister is a teacher. It should have been kind of clear to me um, that I was maybe, you know, teaching was in my blood or something. Um, but, uh, but yeah, sort of at that point, I decided to focus largely on teaching um, and really had the feel that I wanted to get into a position once I had my PhD that was more of a teaching oriented position rather than a 
a research focused position. And so I just started seeking out as many opportunities as I possibly could to get more teaching experience. Okay. And for your degree, your PhD degree, did you know from like your first year or maybe even your first like class <laughs> that you wanted to do social psych or? No. Um, so I, I did know coming right into undergrad that I, uh, I loved psychology, um, even though I'd never taken a psychology class before in my life. Um, but I, I loved biology in high school. We didn't have any sort of psychology course um, in my high school curriculum. But my mom at one point came home um, with some random library book that they were like getting rid of. And it was a psychology, some intro psychology textbook. And I remember reading through it just thinking, oh, yeah, I love this. Um, this is what I want to do. And so I was really excited to, to take Psych 100 uh, when I got to U of T in my first year. And then I did end up loving uh, the class. Um, so I, uh, what was the question? <laughs> so um, did you, I guess like, did you always there. know you oh, wanted to Oh, social psych, yes. Yeah. And so, so I knew psychology right away. Um, but I actually really loved, so I mentioned I loved biology. So that's the side of psych that I really loved my first couple right. of years was the physiological psychology um, classes. So I took, there was, um, at the time when I was an undergrad, there was uh, sort of two parts to 290, which is like the bio psych oh, yeah. stuff. And so I took those classes um, and I really, I just, I loved um, sort of that side of things. And so, um, in third year, I took the laboratory course with the psychobiology lab or whatever it was called at the time where you're actually working like hands-on, um, with rats in the lab, um, doing research. And that's when I realized, uh, that the hands-on stuff, uh, wasn't actually for me. Oh, so I yeah. did not like, um, you know, doing the injections and doing that like it was it was cool like some parts of it were cool but I, I just I realized sort of at that point that it wasn't for me um and I did really enjoy my social psych classes okay. um and so sort of from third year beyond I really focused on social psych I joined the research specialist program and so my honors thesis was focused on a um, social psych in a social psych lab and doing social psych stuff um and so then, yeah, I went on to pursue my, my PhD in okay. social psychology. <laughs> or you don't have to work with rats, basically. <laughs> yeah, you, you wouldn't want to be in my lab then, where a lot <laughs> yeah. of it is mice work. And yeah, yeah. They took out the... Uh, so before, I this is what I heard, is that before they used to let undergrads inject and stuff, and now yeah. they've completely removed that I, Yeah, I am not sure exactly how... Um, the lab courses run these days. They've done a lot of work. So Suzanne Wood, who teaches it now, um, has done a lot of work to sort of rejig it uh, a bit. Um, and yeah, and I, you know, it was a great experience. I'm really um, happy that I had that experience because mm-hmm. otherwise, you know, you don't know if you yeah, want to do something unless sure. you actually get that hands-on experience mm-hmm. doing it, which is why I always encourage students to, you know, try to get into as many labs as you can to get a feel for like what would a career in this mm-hmm. type of field um, you know, actually be like, um, cause that experience is so important, but yeah, the, the working with the animal stuff just wasn't for me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And now that you mentioned labs, actually, I think it's really difficult nowadays to try and find like a position in a lab or even it's, like, I know it's competitive because there's so many, like our, our program is just so, uh, Populated. There's so many psych students yeah. and everyone wants, you know, wants to get that experience. Um, and so, you know, there's lots of labs, but there's, you know, there's only finite space, mm-hmm. you know, finite number of research assistants that, that each lab can take. Um, so it is tricky, but you, you know, if you're persistent um, and, you know, you, you 
contact graduate students and you contact faculty um, and you show that you know you're genuinely interested in the type of research that's being done in their lab and stuff um, you know there there are lots of opportunities but I do understand that it you know it can be sort of stressful for and competitive sure. because there's so many students mm-hmm. out there looking for these positions would you have any particular tips in research finding because I know for myself <sighs> I was told to basically read it read a couple of papers and then email as many people as possible. But I feel like that's so general in a sense. Yeah, it's, you know, so I have advice on what not to do, which is definitely do not do the thing where you send out an email that is just like, dear professor, I am interested in doing research in your lab. And it's sort of clear to every faculty member who's getting that, that they've just been like BCC'd on a list of like all of the faculty. And it's just like a mass email looking for any opportunity. Um, because those are just so easy to ignore. Sometimes I'll respond to the student and be like, look, this isn't the best way to go about mm-hmm. doing this. Like, I'll try to give them um, some feedback. But again, you want to really um, show that that faculty member um, that you have done a little bit of background work, that you've looked up their lab, that you understand the type of uh, research that is going on there. Um, sometimes your best bet can be not even to, uh, to contact the faculty member, the PI of the lab themselves, but to find um, a postdoc or a graduate student, particularly perhaps like an upper year um, PhD student who, um, you know, whose work you're interested in and you might have a sort of a, maybe a, a better chance of them getting back with you um, right. than the faculty member who, you know, is of course just getting tons and tons of mm-hmm. emails. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely gotten, uh, I guess, complaints from friends that they've emailed people, but they hate getting like, I guess, left on red, quote unquote or not even left on red, just like ignored for some time. And I feel like that discourages a lot of people, initially at least. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, you just have to sort of be be persistent. Um, and if you're looking for, you know, a volunteer position or looking for, um, you know, wanting to do uh, an independent project or something like that, also contact the faculty member um, as early as possible. So sometimes it'll be, you know, sort of mid-August and I'll get an email from a student who wants to do a project. But at that point, I have a pretty clear idea about yeah. the students that I have sort of lined up for mm-hmm. the next year. Um, so email early, be um, you know, be persistent. Don't, you know, take it personally if, you know, you don't get a response back or if they get a, you know, sorry, we're, we're not looking for, um, for someone right now, for anyone right now. Um, you know, it's not personal in all likelihood. (laughs) Just keep, keep trying. (laughs) Actually going back to like your bigger lectures, ping pong kind of back and forth. (laughs) How do you, how can you tell if people, um, sorry, how can you tell if students understand the concept that you're talking about so in terms of like a bigger lecture versus a smaller lecture yeah yeah so in a smaller lecture or smaller class it's usually um you know usually because we read faces or i see the nodding or i you know i can kind of just get uh, a feeling about whether um you know students are understanding or not or i you know i just simply ask and i feel like people are comfortable enough in that small um sort of setting that they're just going to tell me or you know ask a question if they need um, clarification in Psych 100 in Con Hall, that's the one place where that becomes really challenging right. uh, to do. Is just, hey, does anyone have a question? And like you know, someone in the third row of the second balcony like puts up a hand. Like it's just not um, super conducive to, to clarification. Um, so, I mean, there's a number of things I'll do. I might uh, I use various classroom response systems, and I could ask them. 
for some feedback about how well they understand something doing just a, a show of hands. Oftentimes what will happen is if I, you know, if it's a two or three hour lecture, we'll take a break. And if, you know, multiple students come up to me with the same question, uh, okay. then I e very quickly clue in that, oh, like this, this wasn't clear. Right. Um, and so when we come back from the break, I'll be like, okay, I was getting questions about this. And I'm sure at that point, if a couple of students have been, you know, brave enough to come up and ask me that question, I'm sure there's probably hundreds sitting out there who, yeah. um, who aren't understanding it. So I will make sure at that point that I go back over um, and clarify whatever the um, the confusion was for a, a particular thing. Um, so yeah, sounds like 100, that's oftentimes maybe sort of the number one way that I, um, I realize something has um, has gone awry or not gone over as clearly as I had hoped or anticipated right. that it would. Um, how would you describe your style of teaching? Um, very... Um, kind of like conversational, I want to say, and I often get that sort of feedback from students um, that I'm not, like, I'm not very formal in my lectures. Uh, I don't feel like I, I don't try to, I don't know, put on airs or give, um, you know, uh, you know, I just want to talk like a real person right. <laughs> to my students, I guess. Um, and so I'm very much just, you know, sort of myself in, in my classroom, uh, for better or worse. Um, but that's sort of my style. I try to be uh, as, as warm and welcoming as possible, especially in, you know, the super large classes like Psych 100, where, um, you know, I feel like we things can go really wrong if the if the environment is sort of set up wrong. Like I want to create a place where um, people are coming to learn and everyone's engaged and interested and paying attention and comfortable to, to ask questions or to come up with mm -hmm. me and, uh, and talk with me at, at breaks or after the lecture to send me an email or drop by my office hours um, and where students feel that they can interact with one another and that it's not all... Um, you know, just like that they're not like in competition with one another yeah. and that kind of sense, like trying to create sort of this nice, um, warm, you know, environment where, you know, real learning can take place and students feel like they, um, yeah, that it's just a comfortable learning environment. Yeah, actually, I think Professor Kyle described it, doing a lecture is kind of a performance in and of itself. Yeah. Would you, would you agree or? I, I mean... <laughs> Yes or no. I don't know if I call it a, a performance, but I mean, there's certainly that aspect to it, especially again in Psych 100 where you're, you know, you're like literally on a stage right, like in yeah. front of an audience. Like, yes, of course, there's um, the sort of performative aspect to it. Um, and I, you know, I'll do, you know, I'll try to do demonstrations and I bring in interesting guest speakers and things that I feel like um, are going to add to the material um, and help, you know, certain things click or make uh, certain concepts more clear to the students. Um, so, yeah, I mean, part of it is, you know, performance, I guess, in that sense. <laughs> so with your teaching, how do you balance your personal life? Because for me personally, <laughs> um, personal life, um, <laughs> so I find it kind of difficult at times when I have to balance work and then I have to balance lab work. Yeah. And trying to manage time with studying or with friends or etc yeah um yeah it's it's uh it's not easy um you i do feel like you often have more time than you feel that you have or you think that you have and so when you um you know so if i think of my life like 
pre-kids versus after having um, kids. You just kind of adapt to the new normal, right? And right. so you carve out, you know, you just learn to use your time more efficiently um, or more effectively because you, you know, you have certain obligations now that you um, have to attend to. Like, I, you know, I can't just spend all night working uh, when right. I have kids to, to take care of. Um, you know, so you just kind of adapt um, and yeah, I don't know. It somehow worked out. <laughs> it seems to work itself out. Um, but I, I do, you know, I make lists and I use my calendar and I write things down and I, you know, you definitely have to carve out um, time for certain things. Otherwise, um, it can sort of, things can snowball out of control. Oh, yeah, <laughs> for sure. And would you have any tips on how to organize? I, you know, it, it, I feel like there's a lot of, individual preferences in that regard. I've always, so I've now used an online sort of calendar, but for the most part, for me, I, I like writing things down. I'll remember things better. I um, might organize things better if I sort of have like an actual written uh, to-do list and keep like a written calendar on top of my, uh, my electronic stuff. But just planning ahead um, so thinking about what you have to do today versus what you have to do by the end of the week versus what is, you know, sort of big goals for the month um, and just carving it out, but also leaving a bit of time for flexibility because there are certain days where you have to recognize that you're just, it's just things aren't going to happen. You're just going to be in a bad mood or yeah. something is going to, you know, life is going to happen and sort of something's going to throw you off course. Um, so to not beat yourself up about that and to realize that you're going to also have other days where you wake up and you just like conquer the world and you yeah. check off like a million things off your list, right? And that, um, you know, just recognizing that that's going to happen um, and then dealing with that um, has been helpful, um, helpful to me, right? So when I feel like I've had a, a less than productive day um, or even a less than productive week or something, I know that I'm going to sort of make up for it by, um, you know, being super on my game <laughs> the next mm -hmm. week. So, kind of back to courses, I know it's been really back and forth, but um, <laughs> I know course evaluations tend to be like a big thing, especially for like professors and TAs, and often you, more often than not, there you go, um, a lot of people send out reminders saying, oh, do your course evaluations. Sure. I feel like undergrads don't get the importance of how important yeah. those course evals are. Um, yeah. Do you want to shed a little bit of light onto like <laughs> what those actually tell you in terms of like how well the students receive the course or not? Yeah, so course evals are really important, um, especially so in my courses, I will always do um, mid-semester feedback. So I don't want to wait until the course is over to actually see how you guys are liking certain things. Um, are finding the class. So I will do mid-semester feedback um, where I can then try to tweak certain things uh, before the class um, has ended. But those end-of-year course evaluations, they are really important. So from my perspective as an instructor, um, you know, I read through every single one, right? We get the aggregate data, obviously, but then I get all the comments and I will sit there um, and it's a lot, it can be a lot of comments in a class where you have like 1,500 students, but I will sit there and I will read through um, every single one and you sort of pull out themes um, and it's been really informative in terms of, um, you know, whether students really like a, a textbook that we're using or not, or a certain piece of technology that we're using in the class or not, that they, um, you know, that they loved an assignment or hated an assignment or, you know, all that type of feedback. I, I take that very seriously and I will try to make, um, you know, to adjust for that when 
uh, preparing for the next year. Um, so from my perspective, they're very helpful. They're also, um, you know, read by a lot of people aside from the actual instructor. So the you know, chair of the department um, and deans and provosts and all the, um, you know, sort of powers that be at the university, but they'll use those course evaluations to make, um, you know, to make important decisions about hiring if you're low on the job market as a, so if you're not, um, you know, sort of full-time faculty, but maybe you're um, a sessional instructor and you're applying for jobs at another, you know, institution, they're going to want to see those course evaluations um, to make, you know, hiring decisions, to make decisions about, um, uh, but all sorts of things, basically, that have not just to do with the individual instructor, but whether this course is, um, you know, needs a really big change or whether this course is even necessary, oh, you know, okay. as a part of the curriculum. But if maybe the feedback is, oh, we've covered, you know, most of the stuff in this other course, right? And then the, the department's going to go, oh, like, what's going on here? Uh, where students are saying, you know, they're learning the same thing in, in this course and that course. Um, so, you know, curriculum level type changes. So they can be very useful and they're used in all sorts of different contexts. And so it is really important that we get feedback from as many students as possible. So we switched to online forms um, like five or six years ago, um, whereas it used to be like, you know, the last day of class, you'd hand out like paper forms oh, and the students okay. who were there would actually fill them out and they sort of would have to fill them out because they're sitting in class and there's time dedicated to that. Um, but now it's sort of on the onus of the students to take, you know, carve out a little bit of time. Um, you know, unfortunately it's at the end of the semester where everyone is just super busy. Oh, yeah. um, and so that's why you get all those like reminders from everyone, like, please do take a few minutes. Um, you know, it doesn't take more than a few minutes to fill um, to fill out those course evals because more data is always better. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and we, we really want to hear from you. Would you agree or disagree that undergrad was actually an enjoyable time? Not like <laughs> the whole, like, you cry through undergrad and you make it out alive no, I, prospect. I, I mean, I loved... I loved undergrad. I loved grad school. I loved all of it, um, which isn't to say that every day was a joy and bliss and whatever. I, you know, in undergrad, um, you know, I worked my butt off. I, I studied all the time. Um, still, that's an exaggeration, obviously. Um, but I, I worked really hard. Um, I, you know, I remember going and hanging out with uh, with friends and I bring my like bio lab book with me oh so that I can like read on the train. Um, but my friends knew I was the, uh, you know, that kind of girl. Um, <laughs> they forgave me. Um, you know, so I, I did go out and I had a lot of fun uh, as well. But I, you know, I just, I loved my time um, here at U of T. Um, and I, you know, I really loved looking back joining the, the research specialist program, which is a really small, you know, there's maybe 15 of us cohort of students who take certain classes together. You're doing your honors thesis, honors thesis together. Um, you know, those are the, the people that sort of, I really remember that I'm still, you know, Facebook friends that I think of, um, when I think back to my time at U of T, as well as, you know, that first year experience where you're, I lived, um, in a, it wasn't really a dorm at the time. It was a hotel that was uh, used to oh, like, cause there wasn't any space, right? There was I, always space yep. issues. Um, so we were at the, the Best Western, which I think I drove past it the other day. And it's not actually a Best Western anymore, but uh, yeah, anyway, we changed we're, it recently. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, living, you know, living downtown Toronto, I'm from Barrie. And so I was excited just to come and live in Toronto. Um, and yeah, living in the dorm away from home, like it was a really, you know, it's a really exciting, fun time. And so definitely take time to enjoy it. Um, but, you know, 
get the right balance between doing that and doing your studies, um, you know, but making time to, to socialize, making time to, to connect with your friends or connect with family, um, to, to exercise and do things that make you happy and keep you sane. Those are really uh, important and you have, you know, they'll make you a better learner, honestly, if you're, you know, taking the time to go, you know, go for that run because that makes you feel better, um, you know, taking the time to do these other things can um, make your study sessions more effective and just, yeah, improve your whole overall overall experience while you're here. I think I can relate. <laughs> I remember in first year, and even second year, really, um, a lot of my mental energy, I guess, was, like, focused on, you need to study more. Like, you yeah. sh- like this, like, over- overwhelming sense of guilt where if you're going out, right. you're not studying or, like, other people are studying, but why aren't you studying? But the more I learned to kind of overcome that guilt or even like that, those thoughts yeah. and like going out and having fun or going to the gym or yeah, you need those breaks. Napping yeah. Even. yeah. Oh yeah. Don't sleep is important. It's so important. I, um, I talk about that a lot in, in intro psych. Um, I think cause it's, yeah, it's incredibly important. And I know it's one of the first things to go and you're like, Oh, I need time. Oh, I'll just, I don't need to sure. sleep. It's just wasted time. Um, no, it's incredibly important time. So don't cut into that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, it's just, it's going to make you, um, you know, make, like I said, make those study sessions more effective. If you've taken, you know, that hour to go to the mm-hmm. gym or to take a break and relax, you come back focused and refreshed For and sure. it's way more effective than sitting there and just like telling yourself, I have to study all the time. I have to read all the time. Yeah. I have to learn all the stuff. Um, no, that's going to backfire pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. Like burning out, I remember wasn't yeah. great when you just stare I guess, like, my laptop now, but uh, (laughs) uh, when you just stare at something for, like, so long and you're trying to absorb it, but your brain just says no. No, and you just end up reading the same page, like, three times because you're like, yeah, this just isn't sitting in. Like, no, if that's happening, go do something else. Recharge. Go take that nap. Go grab a coffee with a friend or whatever. And, um, yeah, no, one of the things that I really wish I could take a magic wand and change is sort of the idea that, you know, if I ask a class, you know, when people treated as sort of a badge of honor, if you stayed up all night or you, you know, you only got two hours of sleep and, you know, you sort of wear it like you're proud of that or wear that as a, you know, badge of honor and everyone's like, oh no, I'm, I'm busier than you are. I, you know, spent more time studying than you did or I got, you know, I'm surviving on the, the least amount of sleep um, possible. Like that's a terrible, uh, you know, sort of, um, those are terrible norms, a terrible sort of culture to, to feel like you um, are living in. It's not um, helpful to anybody. And so, um, I don't like that. Like, you should be ashamed if you got two hours of sleep. Honestly, um, Yeah, there's nothing to be proud of. And I do, like, I try to, um, you know, I get on my soapbox a little bit about this in intro psych because it, uh, you know, it really drives me crazy. It's not helpful to anybody. Um, um, so just to wrap up, um, what would that, what are your three top tips you oh, give to students <laughs> For university, oh any any three, it can be. Oh my gosh! It can be cooking. It can be. <laughs> it can be like best napping spots on campus, or oh my goodness, any any three tips. Three tips. Um, I don't know. Be um, make new friends. I guess is tip. Uh, tip number one. It you know, U of T is a really really big place. Um, but those big places can be 
oddly isolating, um, especially if you're living, you know, living off campus or still living at home. It can be really easy to sort of come to campus, go to your classes, go back home, whatever. Um, but try to make some some real connections with people here at U of T. Find your little niche, wherever that is. Um, you know, students in your classes, joining a club, joining a athletic something or other, you know, there's tons of stuff on campus, but finding uh, a group of people to sort of bond with and, and go through your, your undergrad experience with can be incredibly helpful for lots of different reasons. So um, that would be one piece of advice, I guess. Um, oh my gosh, we already talked about sleeping. That's my other one though. Um, sleep, don't forget to sleep. Um, it's really important for so many reasons. Um, let's say my my other tip I should say is if you need help for any reason, physical health, mental health, um, uh, any sort of circumstances, whatever it is, there are lots of resources available on campus during like orientation for first year students. I'm sure that they just get inundated with like all this information um, and it can kind of easily be lost or forgotten. Um, but please, I will run into students who are in, you know, their, their upper years and they've not gone to, to seek help when there's, you know, people out there who would um, be very willing to help um, and want to help you with whatever the particular struggles are that you're having. So please don't be afraid to go um, and ask for help. Anyone who's in a class with me, you can come and ask me. And if I am not the right person to give you help, I will send you in the right direction. Um, again, the syllabus can often be a good place to, to find um some direction on, on where to go if you're looking for help, if you're, um, you know, if you don't have enough money to, to purchase your textbooks, what do you do if you're coming to school hungry? Um, because just getting access to food is a problem for you there. We can help you. Um, so please don't be afraid to come uh, and ask for help. There's lots of people on campus who would be really, really willing um, and want to help you. Alrighty. Well, uh, again, thank you for coming on the podcast. <laughs> it, was a, it was a pleasure talking to you. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Lecture Me Not. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and other podcast hosting apps. Next time, we'll be speaking to Geith Mulberry, a PhD student, about his experiences throughout his PhD program thus far, and his experience as an international student. Until next time, lecture's over.